Good morning to all of you. Um, I am going to be sharing um, something um, hopefully applicable to mothers. Um, we're going to be looking a little bit at the life of Sarah and then maybe touch briefly on Hannah and then think about ways in which we can encourage the mothers. Um, but I hope that it includes a little bit of everybody in this. Um, I've sat through a lot of Father's Days and Mother's Day sermons, roughly 48 of them. I'm not sure. I don't remember some of the early ones. Um, and one of the things that I've realized is that um, preachers tend to be a little harder on men than they are on women in these things, probably because the preachers are men and um, they have very fond thoughts of their mothers. And um, I'm not probably not much different. Um, I, I feel very positively about my mother, although she's not here this morning. Someone suggested maybe when I was talking about an unusual mother, I was talking about my mom, which um, she is unusual, that's for sure. Um, unusual in a good way, I would say. But, you know, being a mother is a little bit thankless. Um, and part of the reason why is because we expect our mothers to be there. We expect them to do certain things. And when you have something that's an expectation, it ceases to be something that you are grateful for. And so I hope that as we think about our mothers this morning, we realize that many of the things that they do, even though we expect them to be there, are still things that we should be thankful for. So I am going to begin at the, at the beginning, which is a very good place to start. Um, so it's hard to explain how badly ancient cultures treated women. So women in ancient Mesopotamia were expected to be homemakers and child care givers. Um, divorce was easy for men. They could tell their wife that they were tired of them for any reason. Um, women could get divorced, but it was only for adultery reasons. Um, later on in the Roman periods, the Romans actually allowed their husbands um, to kill them, to kill their wives, um, although they never allowed the wives to kill their husbands for some reason. Um, but it's, it just kind of explains kind of the power dynamic that was present there. So women in their teen years would have an arranged marriage. The groom's family would pay what's called the bride price, and the bride's family would pay a dowry. This was in ancient Mesopotamia. These were paid to the newly wedded couple and would give them a start in life. Um, and if they got divorced down the road, they had to pay all this back to the family. So this was maybe something that would keep them in line so they wouldn't, they would uh, try to work out their differences. Because that could be a major issue, you know, if they spent all this money and now they have to give it back somehow. So Abraham and Sarah lived in just this sort of a culture. And we think of our culture today as sinful um, but there was just as much sinful behavior in the Old Testament times, too, including child sacrifice. So, when I looked at Jewish culture and how Jewish culture thought of women, uh, women are thought to be just as important as men. Um, they are viewed as having more something they call bina, which is intuition, understanding, intelligence. So, you know, it explains why girls do better in school than boys sometimes. Um, that binna. Um, teachers didn't know what it was, but now they do. So it's probably for this reason that the Jews thought that if a righteous woman, a Jewish woman, married a Gentile, the children would be sanctified and would still be Jewish, while if a righteous man, a Jewish man, married a Gentile, the children would not be considered Jewish. It's interesting, right? 
So you would think, well, they would go both directions. But no, it's the, it's, um, the women who, who kept the faith. So it's mentioned in the Talmud that while in Exodus 20, verse 12, the command to honor your father and mother, the father is mentioned first. In Leviticus 19, verse 3, the order is reversed. And it says, every one of you shall revere his mother and father and keep my Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. And the rabbis felt strongly that this command was stated both, re- both ways. The first way with the father first and the second way with the mother first because both parents are important for children to respect and honor. And so the Jewish people have something called mitzvot, which are things that are expected of them. And uh, you don't need to remember that word, but um, it was these were specific duties that they were supposed to do. And um, mothers were exempt from, from these duties. So if a mother had a child who was crying or was cooking a stew of lentils, that was her primary responsibility and not necessarily getting to midweek prayer meeting. Now, the men didn't have an excuse. They were expected to do these mitzvahs. And I don't bring that up to say that women should try to skip out on, <laughs> on services, but just to say that the rabbis understood that women had responsibilities that trumped some of the other things. And certain of you are in periods of time of your life where you feel like you just don't have place for things that seem more important than childcare and cooking lentils. Um, how many of you all cook lentils? Maybe a few. So, but the point is that God understands the seasons of life that we're in, and he gives place for that. There were a couple of mitzvahs that were specifically women's domain within the home. The first was something called nerot, which was a ritual lighting of candles at the beginning of Sabbath or at the beginning of a holy day. And once the candles were lit within the home, it was the, the Sabbath day as restrictions were in place. So the women would go around lighting these candles and then everybody knew they, um, they, they had to um, rest. And the second was something called chala. Um, and this is based on Numbers 15, verse 20. It says, you shall offer up a cake of the first of your ground meal as a heave offering. As a heave offering of the threshing floor, so shall you offer it up. And so when a woman is making bread, they would take a small portion of the dough and set it aside. Um, This was called the chala. And this portion of the dough is then burned to be certain that it was not eaten. It was a a sacrifice to God, a, a remembrance of his giving that they had the flour and the things necessary to make the dough. And I didn't realize this, but if you buy pre-made Passover matzah, it will have written on the package that Shala has been separated, which indicates that a portion of the dough at the bakery was taken, set aside, and then burned. So these are sort of ways in which women had a place to bring God's presence into their home and make a difference. Specific things. It's not to say that men couldn't do these things if women weren't present, but it was saying, you have this ability. So we're going to move on here to Sarah. So her name means princess. And um, it's interesting that God changed her name um, from Sarai to Sarah. And if you look, those, those two names basically mean the same thing. They both mean princess. So I'm not, I, I researched it. And some people say, well, the difference is that Sarai means my princess. And Sarah just means princess. So the idea being that that Sarai was 
a more limited kind of thing. Um, Abraham's princess and Sarah, meaning she was a mother to many people. And um, so she's mentioned several times in the story without speaking. Um, Abraham talks a lot, God talks, um, but Sarah doesn't say very much. Um, and we're going to pass over the story of Sarah and Hagar. Um, I'll probably talk about that later down the road. Um, but we're going to go to Genesis chapter 18. Um, and this is a story of Abram, or I think Abraham at this point, and Sarah. So, so then the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. And he said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you've come to your servant. They said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set them before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I've grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Surely, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you, you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. And so we come to this story. This is where we're going to stop here. And we find Sarah sort of at the end of herself. Infertility is something that is very difficult to talk about. It is something that a lot of women struggle with, though. There's something like 10 or 11% of women who have difficulty either conceiving or carrying babies to term. And I remember so many times working with mothers who wanted to have children, who tried all the different things that were out there, going to specialists, doing different things, and just not able to have children. I remember one mother in particular just breaking down and crying and telling me that a little bit like the woman with the issue of blood, she spent all the money she had on doctors, and she was no better for it. They had not given her the answers that she needed. She had gotten pregnant, but each time something happened, and the baby never came to, to term. And I think this is the sort of thing that men don't fully understand. 
Um, a woman who's struggling with infertility needs extra care and love. She feels alone, and she feels like she is not adequate for who she wants to be. And Sarah was just in this sort of situation. She didn't go to the store to get pregnancy tests. She didn't have a specialist she could go to, um, but certainly there were midwives back then. There were special herbs that she'd heard of that she could get, and she had done everything that she'd heard of three or four times over, and nothing had happened. And she is now almost 90 years old. And we can tell that she'd given up because she had given her servant to Abraham and let him father a son by Hagar. And this is not something Sarah would have done if she had any hope left in her heart. She was just done, and she said, Abraham, you need to have an heir, and this is the way to do it. And I would leave it here to say that God understands this need for women, and he will meet it in his own way and in his own time. And I trust that we as a church can attempt to meet the needs of those who are struggling with this sort of thing, as with the couples who have many children. So we see here Middle Eastern hospitality. Um, I don't know when Abraham figured out that these men were special. Um, I doubt he knew that when he first saw them. Eventually he did. Um, but at some point he figured out this was a theophany. But he sees these three men on the way, and he offers them something special. Um, he offers them three things. First, he offers them a shady place to sit down. And this may not sound like much, but in Palestine in the middle of the day, a shady spot is very desirable. The second thing is that he offered his guests water to wash their feet, which I'm sure felt really good. And the last thing is he had a huge meal prepared. And, you know, they, they didn't have microwaves back then. They didn't have convection ovens. They didn't have anything like that. Um, and so he, he says to Sarah, I want you to make bread using three seahs of flour. Um, this is something like 21 quarts of flour. If you all have ever made um, bread, that's a huge amount of, of bread. I don't, I mean, three people. I mean, even if they were really hungry, there would still be tons left over. He has a calf that is killed and roasted for them. And, um, and so... <laughs> I don't know what Abraham thought, but he just wanted to make sure the spread was adequate for the occasion. He was going to make sure that everything was there. I remember in Guatemala walking up a lane to see a, a, a dear sister in the church um, out in Sansur. And as she saw us coming, she scooped a chicken off the ground and started wringing its neck and saying, of course you will stay to dinner. <laughs> and of course we had to then. The chicken was dead, but you know... You can imagine, this is something that, it takes a little while to, for somebody to, to kill the chicken and then to pluck it and, and to get it cooked. You know, we, we were not going to have a quick stay at her house, but it was a show of hospitality. She was saying, you are welcome. What I have is yours, and I am not going to hold back. Um, and of course, you know, in the days before refrigerators, people had to do that, right? You couldn't put the beef in the fridge. You had to keep the beef uh, mooing until such time as you were ready to eat the um, eat that beef. So, or they could salt it or do some other things. But, but that was primarily the, probably the way that they kept food. So Sarah is in the tent all this time. She's helping prepare this meal for these guests. And then we find her laughing. So the visitor asks Sarah, 
asks where Sarah is. Um, and he knew the answer to that. You know, he's God. He, he knew exactly where Sarah was. But, you know, I think it was to let Sarah know, you know, you should pay attention to this part of this conversation. I know if you've ever been in a room and there's lots of people talking and suddenly you hear your name across the room. And your ears perk up and you look in that direction. You think, what are they saying about me? And suddenly you're, you're just all ears. And Sarah, once she heard her name mentioned, she's in the tent. She knows that suddenly she's paying attention. She didn't say anything. And the prophecy came. Sarah and Abraham would have a son. And they would have a son soon. So they had been promised a son. They knew a son was coming. And yet they'd sort of given up. And yet now there's a time put on it. Finally, at last, they say, by this time next year, you are going to have a child. And Sarah did what we probably all would do in that situation. She laughed. And she didn't laugh because she was happy. She laughed because she was sure this guy, whoever he was that was out there, was just crazy. You know, maybe Sarah looked kind of young for 90. Abraham looked young for 100. I, I can't even imagine what that looks like. But they were done having children, and they hadn't had any. And so she just chuckles humorously to herself. But this visitor wasn't just anyone. And he said something. He said, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah was embarrassed. She, she did laugh, but she didn't want to admit that she had, and so she denied laughing. Um, and I don't think the visitor was criticizing her, but just under, underlining the fact that he knew her and he knew her feelings. And so then we come to the place where Sarah demonstrates faith. And we don't see it in this story. You know, you, you read through it and you don't understand it. But if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, it talks a little bit, a little bit about Sarah. Hebrews 11, verses 11 and 12, it says, By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars in the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. So we don't know how long it took, but over the next weeks, few months, something changed in Sarah's heart. She began to trust. This thing was impossible, and yet the one who had given the promise was faithful, and he could make even the impossible possible in her life. And so she chose to trust God, even though what he promised seemed impossible. And that's wonderful. God brings fulfillment to us because he's promised that. We're going to jump over to Genesis chapter 21. This is Isaac is born. So Genesis 21, and we'll read the first seven verses there. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him. Whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac, 
Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. It's such a beautiful story. And the contrast is clear. In the first story, Sarah laughs because she just thinks this is a terrible joke. And now she laughs because God has given her something completely unexpected. The name Isaac means he will rejoice or he will laugh. And Sarah says that God has made her laugh and rejoice. And not only that, but everyone who hears the story will also laugh and rejoice. They would hear the story of God's faithfulness in her life and be able to see something wonderful. You know, children make us laugh. Um, I was thinking about different stories to illustrate this, I decided I probably wouldn't uh, choose my children, although they, they have done some amusing things over time. But when, uh, when I was a boy, um, my grandfather died, my father's father. And um, he was somebody who had been in World War II, and um, he had um, been um, shot after the war um, and um, lost his leg uh, while he was patrolling in Germany. And and so, anyway, um, we all knew this story, and he, um, so we were out at school one day when I was probably about mm, eight or nine years old for, um, for his funeral, and so my mother didn't really think too much about it, and, um, and so I, I should add that, um, that he, um, he had died of a, of a heart attack. He'd had a heart attack in his basement. And, and uh, so anyway. So my mother, the next time that we had a PTF, um, she came to school and she was talking to my younger brother, Matthew's teacher. And, um, and his teacher said, you know, uh, uh, Sister Waldron, um, um, Matthew was absent from school the other day. And... She said, yes, yes, his, his grandfather died. He said, oh, yes, that's what he said. Um, he said, so, so, he was, um, he was machine gunned by Germans? And she said, well, yeah, he, he was. He's in his basement? He said, no, no, they were separated by several years, many years, actually. So anyway, so Matthew had come to school and told his teacher that, um, that um, his grandfather had died um, in his basement by being machine gunned by Germans. And um, it's an understandable uh, mistake to make when you're six or seven years old, but um, it made my mother laugh. And, and we still laugh to this day thinking about that. And as you think about your children, there are things that they have done that they have said, um, hopefully you've written some of them down because they will make you laugh for years to come. They're the stories that keep on giving. And the message of this story is that God is faithful and he will fill our lives with joy in his own way and in his own time. And it would be a mistake to read this story as a promise that all couples will eventually have children. Um, but rather, this is a message for each one of us that God will fulfill us in his own time and in his own place.
And he promises joy. He just doesn't tell us how that joy will come. So we don't know much more about Sarah. Uh, She doesn't play a huge part in the story, but she seems like she was a good mother. And I would move on to to some thoughts from Hannah, another barren woman. So we know the story of Hannah. Um, She visited the tabernacle with her husband. Um, He had another wife um, and all the other wife's children. So Hannah did not have any children of her own. Um, And, you know, Hannah was kind of upset, and her husband made things worse by asking her the question, am I not better to you than ten sons? Um, So, you know, um, husbands, if you forgot to get your wife a Mother's Day card this morning, do not ask her the question, am I not better to you than ten cards? Um, Because it doesn't help the situation. Um, And Hannah didn't feel any better after Elkanah asked her this question. Um, And (laughs) she, she was thankful for her husband, probably. Not at that exact moment, but she was she was grateful that she had one. But she certainly wasn't. Um, that didn't fill the place in her heart that she wanted to have a child. And so she prayed for a child. She prayed there at the um, tabernacle, and she was so distraught that Eli thought she was drunk and reprimanded her. Um, she told him that she wasn't drunk, but simply distraught. And Eli told her to go, and that God would grant her request. And Hannah did have a son and named him Samuel and raised him for a while at home. In 1 Samuel 1, verses 24 through 28, it says, Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bulls, one ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here, praying to the Lord. For this child, I pray, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. It's such a beautiful thing, isn't it? Um, you know, Samuel is very much like Samson, but Samson in the way that he could have been, should have been. He was a Nazarite from birth. And Hannah had promised God that she would give Samuel back to him. And that's what she did. So she took him to the tabernacle, and she left him there. And she saw him once a year. She had no guarantee that she would have any more children. But she didn't care. It was just such a blessing that she had been given this one child, and she was willing to give him back to God. And it's interesting, the terminology terminology that she uses. She says, loaned him to the Lord. And in a sense, even though Samuel was at the tabernacle, he would always be Hannah's little boy. Giving him to God wouldn't change that. But it certainly would and did affect how often she saw him and what kind of work he would have in his life. There's a man by the name of William Borden who was raised in a wealthy home on the outskirts of Chicago. His father was a millionaire. Um, He'd made his money in silver mines. His mother became a Christian when he was seven years old. And she began to take William along with her to church services at the Moody Church in Chicago. Um, So this was after the time of D.L. Moody, um, and R.A. Torrey was pastor there. And it was there that he became a Christian. And throughout his childhood, his mother impressed on him the importance of following Jesus. 
They had many times of prayer together. And most of all, she just prayed that God's will might be done in his life. And it seems that somehow through this ministry of his mother, he received a real desire to serve Jesus. People who he went to school with said, you would never know that he was a millionaire, but you could not miss the fact that he was a Christian. He would often tell people that people often mistook his family for the wealthy Borden family that made the sweet and condensed milk. And people would assume that meant he wasn't wealthy, but he actually was. He just wasn't related to this other Borden family. So when he was 16 years old, he took a trip around the world and was struck by the needs of the people in Asia to hear the gospel. And he wrote to his mother at that point, Your request that I pray to God for his very best plan for my life is not a hard thing to do, for I have been praying for that thing for a long time. And he went on to say that he was interested in mission work. He went to Yale and then to Princeton after he returned, threw himself into his studies and into ministry for his fellow students. Um, then he went back to Chicago and got ordained for a mission um, mission position at the Moody Church and left there with a desire to serve God with the China Inland Mission, which husband Taylor had started uh, many years previous. And along the way, he, he, as he was traveling, he was going to go to China, but he stopped in Egypt because he wanted to learn about Islam, because he was going to be working with the Iger people that were in China. Uh, this is a group of people, they are still there today, and, um, and they're, a mu- they, they're Muslim people in general. Um, and so he decided this would be a good place for him to stop and to learn about how to minister to their needs, how to share Christ with them. And while he was there, he developed meningitis. His mother was traveling to Egypt to meet him um, and spend a little bit of time with him before he went on to China. And he died only a few hours before she arrived in Cairo. He's buried there in a simple grave, which bears this inscription, Without Christ, there is no accounting for such a life. And I don't know what his mother, Mary, thought, but it's clear that she had given her son to God. Whatever happened, she was simply pleased if her son chose to follow God. How hard is it for us to give our children to God? Some of you have done just that. And there's a beautiful reward even if the short-term holds separation and difficult communication. And so, it seems to me in these two stories, we see three big things that mothers are called to do. And there are probably more, but these are the three things that, that I would point out. First of all, mothers are called to trust. Um, and they're called not to trust themselves, but to trust God. And this isn't always easy to do. Um, mothers are warriors, spelled with an O, not an A. So they are, they are warriors. They, they think about all the things that could go wrong. And I've had plenty of mothers who were in their 80s who tell me, you know, I still worry about my 50-year-old son and about what's going to happen, and I pray all the time for him. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, they... They still think about them as their little boy or little girl. And so when we worry, we need to take these things to God. Because God is trustworthy. The second thing is that they need to understand that God is the source of fulfillment in their lives. 
So this may not come in the, in the form of children, but he will bring joy instead of sorrow, happiness in place of sadness. Uh, but it will happen in his time. And the third thing is that each one of us needs to give what we have back to God. So whatever it is that he has given to us, we can loan it back to him. There's a tendency to keep it back, to, to hold it for ourselves. We want to hold our families close, to see them often, to have a little, a little click, a little connection with people around us. Um, you all have heard Otto Koenig's story about his pineapples. And he's, he's, he tells the story, and I'm not going to tell the whole story, but Otto Koenig was working um, in New Guinea, I believe, and he, he decided he wanted to have pineapples. And he, would, and he planted a bunch of pineapples. He, um, it takes a long time to get pineapples. I guess it takes about three years. And so anyway, um, and the, he never got any pineapples. The, the native people just stole them all. So as the pineapples were ripened, they just would pull them right off, um, and then he got none. And he did all sorts of things. He he got uh, he put up a fence, and he he put a guard dog around it, and and he paid people not to take the pineapples, and they still just all disappeared. And finally, um, finally he was convicted, and he said, "You know what? I these pineapples have become a problem," and so. He said, you know, the only thing is, I have to give this pineapple plantation to God. And, and if it's God's, he'll take care of it. And so anyway, so the people, the people came to him and they said, um, Otto, um, why, why, aren't you, why aren't you upset anymore about the, the pineapple plantation? And he, he said, well, I've, I've, given the, I've given it away. Who have you given it to? And they looked around. Is it, is it you? And they asked each other. No, no, none of them had gotten this pineapple plantation from Otto. And Otto said, I have given the pineapple plantation to God. Oh, this was very bad. You've got to get it back. This is not, this is not okay. We're stealing pineapples from God. And so anyway, so, um, so once they realized that, they stopped stealing the pineapples. And, um, and Otto got pineapples and other people got them as well. He was willing to share them with other people. So giving our children to God does not mean that we're giving up our love and responsibility for them. It simply means that we're trusting their futures to God. And if he wants them to serve him on the mission field or some other place that's far away from us, we're okay with that. So I'd like to finish up just thinking about a little bit about our responsibility to mothers. So, you know, what things can we do to make mother's job easier. So is it enough to get them flowers once a year, get them a card, um, you know, make a little craft thing? Uh, and I would say, you know, that, that's probably not, uh, that's probably not the best way to honor your mother, although those things certainly are nice. Your mother probably puts it in a nice place and uh, remembers fondly. So... Proverbs 6, verse 20 says, My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. And so the first thing I would say is that we are to remember and following the teachings that we receive from our mothers. Um, 
Maybe we're not going to do everything exactly the way that she does it, but at the same time, we are not going to deliberately go back on things that she's um, taught us and, and instructed us in. Second thing is that we can encourage mothers and fathers too, I suppose, as we see them trying to teach children and instruct them in the right way. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11 is not speaking specifically to parents, but I think it's applicable. It says, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. It is challenging to bring up children. Um, and it's easy to be critical, okay, um, when we see things that just aren't going quite the right way. But our challenge is to see good things in people's lives, to see ways in which um, parents are doing what they should, and to give them encouragement in that. I know that I've been blessed many times over the years when the church community around us helped us when we were struggling. Third thing is listen unjudgmentally. Philippians 2 verse 4 says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And I was thinking about this. You know, each child presents his or her own set of challenges. You know, some have learning disabilities, some have, um, some are extremely high energy, some have allergies to a whole bunch of things. And, you know, I've heard, I've heard church people say about parents who are dealing with a child who has autism say, oh, that child just needs a good spanking or something like that. And that's probably not helpful. Unless you've walked in a parent's shoes, you have no idea what they've suffered, what they've dealt with along the years. And so, you know, sometimes the best thing is just to come alongside them and just listen and say, you're a good parent. Parents need to hear that. You're a good mother. You are putting yourself out where God wants you to. Be careful with advice. James 1, 19 and 20 says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And later on in James chapter 3, he says, you know, um, the famous verse, uh, you know, my brethren, be not many masters or many teachers. Um, you know, People come to me all the time for advice, but even there I try to be careful how I, I dole it out in my office. If I can be gentle in my approach, um, it's going to be helpful. Um, and if people haven't asked for advice and you give it to them, it's probably not going to, it's just not going to come across very well. Wait till they ask for it. And if they don't ask you, it's okay. Just pray for them. So focus on support rather than criticism. Um, criticism, if it's warranted, will comes so much better if we develop the relationship first. James tells us, if a, a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And that's James 2, 15 through 17. Um, so James is talking about faith and works, but he's also saying we have a responsibility to help meet needs as we see them. Mothers often feel very alone and quite overwhelmed. Seeing that and reaching out to them to help makes a huge difference. And I think sometimes we're a little bit like how 
um, how older doctors are who went through medical school. Um, so, so medical school is easier now than it used to be. Don't tell Derek, um, but, but, and I heard this. Okay, so my mother, when she went through medical school, had a really hard time. So, so, um, so when you're a, an intern, you you spend every third or fourth night in the hospital, and you're up all night, and then you work the next day. Um, and depending on how, how busy it is, you might or might not get much sleep. You probably don't. But she had times whenever she slept less than what I did, and she, she'd be quick to bring it up. You know, this is, this is how it used to be. And, you know, now it's, it's easier than it used to, you know, when I went through it 20 years ago. Well, uh, and so sometimes older parents think, you know, I got through it. You can, too. And that's not the attitude we should have. Our goal is not to um, glorify suffering, but to help each other so that we, each one of us can be better parents. Just because a mother is able somehow to get up four times in the night with her baby and still get her children off to school the next day does not mean that she's not exhausted to the bone. So in conclusion... I wanted to think a little bit about a story. Hudson Taylor, you all know, um, is one of the most famous missionaries to China, um, and he had a mother named Amelia Taylor, and she loved him deeply and worried about him, and she knew he was not a Christian. And one day, she went to her room, and she locked herself in and decided to plead with God for Hudson's salvation. And she vowed she would not come out until she felt that her prayers were answered. She stayed on her knees for several hours until she felt a flood of joy enter her heart. And later on, Hudson met her and told her that he had some news to share. I know what it is, she told him. You have given your life to God. And you can read about Hudson Taylor's experiences, both before and after he left for China. And there's some pretty amazing things. But he wrote about his leaving to go to China. And he got on a boat, and his mother came to Liverpool to see him off on this six-month voyage. And she knew that she may never see him again. And he told that she was trying desperately not to cry because she loved him so much. And she talked to him. She smoothed out his bed for him. She sang a hymn with him, and then they knelt by his bread in his cabin. And there she gave her son to God. And Hudson said that she tried to restrain her feelings as much as she could for his sake. But then they separated and she went to shore. And he said that as the ship began to move off, she uttered such a cry of anguish that she would never forget. It went through me like a knife, he wrote later. I never knew so fully until then what for God so loves the world means. And I finish here because I believe the closest thing that we humans can have to understand God's love for us is a mother's love for her children. Isaiah 49, verse 15 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. God loves us even better than our mothers do. So I hope this morning that we're struck again by how important our mothers are and how much they need our support. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, 
We have many mothers here. We have many women here. And I just pray that you would bless them mightily today. Help them to see that you've given them an important work to do, something that is challenging but is worthwhile. I do pray, Lord, that we as a church could support them in the ways that each one needs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.